thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this Bible study on the book of Revelation. Uh, we are continuing our study of the seventh trumpet, and tonight we're going to look at uh, chapter 13, uh, where we see uh, the dragon and the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. So why don't we begin by reading this chapter and then walking through it and trying to understand exactly what is going on here, I mean, to the, to the extent that it is possible. Um, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns, and a blasphemous name upon its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them, to make, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived." 
and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should even speak, and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. So, what we have here is a dr the dragon that is effectively imitating that powerful angel. We see the dragon that was sent down from heaven in the last talk. We've seen how he has actually lost his powerful position to be able to deceive the whole world. And now he's hurled down to earth where he wants to continue his um, deceiving work, but cannot do it as openly as he was doing it before. So now he has to effectively use two um, pronged attack, two ways in which to deceive the world. The first one is political, and that is the beast that is rising from the sea. The beast that was like a leopard, with a feet, feet like a bear's, and a mouth like a lion's mouth. And concurrently, uh, the dragon will rely on a second beast. This beast is from the land, therefore it is uh, effectively from the household of God. Back then one might say that um, this beast effectively represents, on the one hand, the opposition of the temple to Christianity, and on the other hand, all those who within the church oppose the true teaching of the church and are spewing heresies. So it is the religious authority that combined with political power will form the two-pronged attack of the dragon against the woman and her offsprings. It is interesting to see that when action takes place, when action, takes, when action is... Um, comes about by God, when God brings about an action and He is responding to our prayer, the situation doesn't always improve immediately. It doesn't improve right away. In fact, it can get worse because what is happening is that as God increases His grace and help afforded to us, the devil increases his attack. It will become more intense until he is defeated. The devil is not going to sit by the sideline and watch as God is converting the world. He is going to fight uh, uh, absolutely. And uh, therefore, he is going to use every means and every method he has to his, um, in his disposal in order to stop or, or, or uh, restrict or slow down the progress of the church. And if you really think about it, the only thing the devil can do, the, only, the one and only thing he can do is influence. The devil is a deceiver and a liar, and that's all he can do as far as we are concerned. So, just as in the garden, the devil did not come about to physically destroy 
Adam and Eve, the devil came in, entered into dialogue with Eve, and convinced her to disobey God. And that's what he does using politics and using religion. What that means to us as Catholics is that we must engage the political world. We must Christianize the political world. We must have politicians who are going to be able to resist the deception of the devil, resist the temptation of power in order to serve the people. We cannot say that the realm of politics escapes the authority of Jesus Christ. That is not true. Uh, we may be tempted to do so, but in reality, it is entirely possible to have wise, godly men and women who serve in the realm of politics. Uh, just it is entirely possible to have godly men and women who serve in other uh, faculties and other positions, doctors, lawyers, um, and um, um, nurses, etc., we can have politicians who are serving the common good with sincerity. We must resist the cynicism of the world that wants to discourage us from believing that political parties or political power can ever be claimed for Christ. That is not true. It can. And it had been at different times in history where you had godly kings and godly uh, men and women who served uh, God with all their heart, and they exercised a very positive influence on society. One example we have, of course, is that of St. Thomas More. He was a politician. He was a lawyer. He was implicated in the affairs of his country, and he stood the course even unto shedding his own blood. And his witness it shines bright today as it did when he uh, offered his life for Christ. Saint Louis, King of France, is another really good example and his uh, and he was, Saint Louis the Ninth, uh, he was a saintly king, but he was a king. And he never, uh, he did not abrogate his kingdom, he did not abrogate his kingship, I mean. He remained a king, yet he acted godly. And there are other men and women throughout history that have been good witnesses for Christ. We must, as Catholics, think about that. And if we have children who would like to consider the political arena, we need to encourage them and not discourage them. The <coughs> this, of course, excuse me, this of course holds true within the religious field. If we think that politicians are going to be tempted to abandon God, how much more men and women who are engaged in the religious life? And uh, just as it would be absurd to tell our children not to become priests or nuns, it would be also absurd to tell them not to become, not to engage the world of politics. Now, going back to what is going on in this chapter, the dragon now is acting indirectly. He doesn't come, he doesn't come about and act directly. He's not visible. He's not a visible entity. He's an invisible. Um, uh, spirit, but he acts through physical entities, the political power and the religious uh, establishment. And w what we also see is that he effectively gave the first beast, the beast, the political beast, essentially, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority. 
And those haughty and blasphemous words are effectively words that say, all you need is me. All you need is the political establishment. You do not need God. So anytime the political establishment starts to take God out of the picture, anytime that the political establishment starts to push God away, it is uttering haughty and blasphemous words. In, this, in, the, in the specific historical context where this is happening, the Roman emperors considered themselves to be gods and required adoration. They required that people would say, we are saved only by Caesar. We are not saved by any other name than that of Caesar. And of course, St. Paul took that expression and turned it around and said, there is no other name that we are be, were saved by other than that of Jesus Christ. So, when the political power requires adoration, explicitly as the emperors did, or implicitly, when the political power tells us to uh, take God out of the picture, that God has nothing to do in the public arena, it is effectively blasphemy against God. Because what is the political power after all? It is nothing more than the expression of the divine will in the life of society. That's what it is. No one is in position of power unless this has been given him. Uh, I am not making that up. I am simply repeating to you what Jesus Christ said to Pilate. You would have no authority uh, over me unless it was given to you from above. If it were, without someone giving you that authority from above, you, do, you have no authority over me. And therefore, the authority of, uh, um, uh, given to politicians is ultimately given to them from above. And there is, therefore, a need for them to recognize this and act accordingly. Now, uh, the 42-month translates into three and a half years. We are going to come back and examine this uh, a little bit later. I'm just now taking a first brush across the chapter and uh, trying to understand the overall meaning. It, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This conquest of the saints, of course, is physical, not, um, um, not spiritual. And by this I mean that uh, politically... Uh, the uh, Roman Empire extended everywhere, and there was no one that did not uh, that that sort of fell away from its uh, influence within uh, the territories where uh, these churches that Saint John is writing to uh, are established, or within a um, uh, you know the realm of the Middle East, uh, Asia Minor, Europe, etc. Likewise, the the Roman Empire had. The, uh, the the military uh, uh, power to be able to go and capture them and bring them captive, etc. In that sense, it was able to conquer them. And authority was given it over every type of people in Tonga Nation. And notice the implicit statement, the subject of, the, uh, of that sentence is not um, mentioned. Uh, this is a Hebraism. Anytime... Um, the a Hebrew author would like to say that God did something, but does not want to, of course, say the name of the Lord, he will re resort to this sort of uh, passive mode where he will say that the action has happened without mentioning who caused it to happen, and that is typically God. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, worship that political beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And that is, that is key here. All who dwell on earth does not mean all, 
all human beings living on earth. It means those who have made earth their final dwelling. Those who have effectively rejected God and his kingdom. All of those will be deceived because they do not have the protection, the sealing, the protection of the Holy Spirit, and therefore will not be able to resist the deception of the devil, and as a result will adore this beast, and thereby increasing their own punishment. And those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world will come back and revisit this in a little while. Uh, verse 9 is an exhortation to the saints. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity goes. If anyone slays with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. The point here is that you are not, saints, you are not to resist using conventional means. This is not a war where you just take up arms and go fight and kill people. You're not going to get anywhere with this. This is a war that is fought liturgically. This is a war that is fought according to God's approach, to God's way, not man's way. You will not win this war by relying solely on political powers. You have to rely on the power of God. Because at the end of the day, it is God who is causing this war to, to happen. It is God who is allowing this, these beasts to rise. It is God who wills for this to take place because through it all, He's going to be glorified and His judgment will come about. And so St. Saint Saint, Saint John is exhorting the believers to understand that if they are to be taken captive, then that's where they should go because they are be, they're going to be called to give testimony to Jesus Christ. It is, they need to understand that even in captivity, even when this happens, God is with them. God is going to take care of them. They will not be deceived. They may give their lives but that will earn them eternal life. Unless you, um, he who loves his life will lose it. He who loses his life on my account will gain it. So the political power, therefore, will exercise a form of a um, will exercise. Um, uh, will unleash a persecution against the saints and will take some of them captive and will kill some of them. At the same time, we see now the rise of the second beast, the beast from the land. And this beast is cunning. It has, it, it has, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So in appearance, it looks like a lamb. So its dress code presumably is that of a priest, it, uh, the outward appearance of it is uh, that of a believer, but when it speaks, it speaks like a dragon. And it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Notice that the second beast, the beast that rises from the earth, is not directly related to the dragon. It is directly related to the beast from the sea. It is effectively at the service of the political beast. And its purpose is to deceive those who dwell on the earth so that they may give due worship, they may give their worship, I mean, to the beast that rises from the sea. And that's uh, how it does it. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. 
in his presence. Uh, sort of an irony because, of course, a priest exercises the authority of Jesus Christ in his presence uh, during the Mass. And here uh, we can see how the beast from the sea is uh, raising itself up, sort of exalting itself. You can see that the dragon, effectively, is trying to make a parody of the Trinity. He's trying to set himself up as a father. He's trying to set up the, the beast rising from the sea as the son. And he's trying to set up the beast rising from the land as the priest serving the son. It's uh, effectively, uh, it's a parody of uh, the church. And, um, and it works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Notice in verse 14, and by the signs which it is allowed to work. Uh, obviously, uh, the passive is again, uh, the passive tense is used here once more, and uh, the subject of uh, that action, the one who is allowing this beast to uh, do these signs, is not mentioned. And we understand by it that this is effectively something that God is allowing. Uh, that, that's what, where it gets really interesting for us because we would think, well, you know, God wants everybody to be saved. So why is he allowing this to happen? How come God is giving permission for these beasts to go ahead and do what they're doing? Uh, deceiving people and even working signs. Well, how, could, how could that be? Well... That is so because it is part of his covenantal um, uh, love and care for us. And the other important element we have to uh, take from this, um, uh, someone may be able to work extraordinary signs. It doesn't mean necessarily that this is from God. And th that is a very important um, a very important rule we must live by and abide by in our faith. We cannot be gullible. Even if we hear of um, miracles, even if we hear of certain things taking place out there, we cannot immediately conclude they are from God, even though our heart, our good heart, would uh, compel us to do so. Uh, it is not a wise approach because it ignores the realities of the spiritual life and it also ignores what God allows and does not allow uh, that's why the church tends to be very careful and very wise in her approach to uh, miracles and her approach to anything that goes outside of the ordinary and that's why it takes her time to be able to study this appropriately and sometimes initially there may be mistakes done for instance Padre Pio uh, the initial reports uh, that, that the Vatican received caused the Vatican to ask uh, Padre Pio not to celebrate Mass. And, uh, and uh, he was then secluded and he had to stay so for 10 years. He could not hear confession for 10 years. And Padre Pio obeyed promptly because this was coming from the church. And 10 years later, this was reversed. And it was only for the greater glory of God and uh, to make Padre Pio an even greater saint. So, um, signs alone are not necessarily uh, an indication that what is taking place is from God. There, there is more around it. Is this sign causing people to increase their love of the church? 
is this sign bringing about conversion and obedience to the church. Not just love of Jesus Christ, obedience to his church and to her laws and to all the things that the church asks us to do. If this is so, and if it is bringing people to be, uh, to be uh, more uh, uh, in, to really reform their lives and to do what the church tells them to do, then that is for the great glory of God. But if it is causing people to sort of set themselves up at their own popes, at their own mini-popes, to decide what's true, what's not, to make up their own criteria on what to believe and what not to believe, then you know something is wrong because this is going against the teachings of uh, the Lord and what he intended to do when he came down uh, from heaven uh, and walked among us. The other interesting point here is that uh, the, the, the beast from the earth bids men to make an image for the beast, which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. This brings to mind that uh, passage, the famous passage where um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and ask him, should we pay taxes for Caesar? And then Jesus takes a coin and says to them, whose image is it on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is to Caesar and to God what is to God. And most of us don't really understand what he meant. What he really meant was that you see this coin, it is made in the image of Caesar. Therefore, that which is made in the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar. And you men are made in the image of God. Therefore, that which belongs to God should be given back to God. In the specific instance here in verse 14, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived, it is really something that says that they are going to be conforming themselves to the image of the beast. And when they conform themselves to the image of the beast, they are effectively deforming their human nature to share more into the beastly nature, just as those who are following Christ see their human nature exalted and elevated because they are going to be sharing with the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And the idea here is that the image of the beast is not simply some sort of a statue that is now going to be able to speak. Rather, it is those who have conformed themselves to the image of the beast who are now like it and those will also receive power so that they can uh, exercise the same uh, terrifying power, if you will, the power of terror of this political beast, such that those who do not obey them will be slain. And, uh, and then everybody will be marked on the right hand or the forehead with the mark of the beast. I'll come back to that in a minute. And then verse 17 and 18 deal with that famous number 666, which we're going to cover a little bit later. Now that we've sort of covered the entire chapter, we see that the gist of it is that the beast from the sea and the beast from the land are there to exercise the power of the dragon on behalf of the dragon so that people who dwell on earth, those who have made their earth their dwelling, will be deceived and come to worship ultimately the dragon and as a result of that worship be lost to heaven. 
And uh, that is, the, and, and the chapter explains to us how this is works, and how this works. And by the way, this pattern works throughout history. It is a consistent pattern with what we've seen throughout history. When you have a kingdom that rises, that rejects God, that rejects the church, you will constantly see two elements, the political and the religious. Uh, even communism, in one sense, can be looked at upon as a religion because it has its own dogma. It has its own uh, sets of beliefs, and um, it enforces them uh, very, very strictly. Uh, in Russia and China and elsewhere. Now that we've seen, therefore, the overall uh, structure of this chapter, let's then begin to look at it in a little bit more detail. The beast that rises from the sea, the description of that beast points us to the fourth beast in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 1 through 7. And, um, uh, yeah, so... Chapter 7, verse 1 through 7, basically. The beast from the sea has the same number of heads and diadems as the dragon, signifying its political power. So, in Daniel, the fourth beast indicated Rome, the empire that will come after that of Alexander the Great, and will be worse than all the, the previous three, the Babylonians, I mean, uh, the, the, yeah, the Babylonians, the Persians, and then the Greeks. And uh, that is effectively what we're seeing happening here. It is the Roman Empire. Note that in 70 AD, it was indeed the Roman army under Vespasian, and then after that under his son Titus, that put a siege to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem utterly. Uh, the beast from the sea has the same number of heads and diadems as that of the dragon, and therefore this, it is made in the image of the dragon, and it carries its political power. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, we have an interpretation of the ten horns as being ten kings. And so, <clears throat> just as we've seen with the dragon having ten kings, we understand that here we're dealing also with ten kings. It has a blasphemous name, which is a reminder of the divine titles that the emperors would give themselves, which is, of course, the epitome of blasphemy. Um, for instance, Augustus, he called himself Caesar Augustus. This Augustus is really a, uh, an, um, uh, some, you know, a, a term that would apply to God only. But uh, he, uh, Caesar, did not uh, um, stop from applying it to himself. The conflict that we, we see with Rome is not on political ground. Revelation is not denying Rome's political authority. It is religious, of course, because, as I said earlier, the Caesars ascribe to themselves divine attributes and therefore obstructs faith in Jesus Christ. Um, in Roman, chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, we read, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you all pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. So we see that uh, in this letter to the Romans, St. Paul has no debate over the authority given to the Roman Caesars as far as the political realm goes. Uh, they are the appointed authority by God to establish rules for good conduct. And if they don't, they will be answerable to God of their behavior. They are there to protect and to establish a, a civil society that is going to be um, a, a fertile ground for the expansion of the church. That's their purpose. And if they are unwilling to do that, if they are obstructing the works of the church, then the wrath of God will flare against them and they will be removed, as this has happened across the centuries and across the ages. It is always interesting to reflect on the fact that during the Second World War, uh, Mussolini, who was a fascist uh, dictator in Italy, Hitler, who um, uh, you know, effectively was an antichrist in, uh, in Nazi, Ger Nazi Germany, um, and um, Stalin and Lenin, Lenin and Stalin, both of, uh, both of whom were also uh, antichrists in uh, communist Russia, all of them were enemies of the church, and all of them would have liked to see the church destroyed. It is stated that Stalin once said, how many tanks does the Pope have? Uh, sort of a contemptuous remark to say that the Pope and the Catholic Church are of no account because they have no army. Therefore, they cannot resist the might of, uh, of Russia. And here we are, some 60 years after the Second World War, and where are all these enemies? They're gone, and the church remains. That is always a lesson for us, but that is not an exception. It is something that has happened over the past 2,000 years, where we have seen multiple attacks mounted against the church in so many different ways, and yet the church perdures, the church remains. And that is precisely because political powers and religious powers are both established by God. And what we see in this chapter is that the dragon is attempting to wrest that control, not to wrest that control from God, because of course he cannot. The, the, the dragon can do nothing against the church. What the dragon can do is deceive those who do not want to believe in the church into believing in something else and mount them as a force against the church so that, they, so that he can try and attempt to slow, stop, or, or uh, restrict the work of the church. And yet, despite all of this, or, in, or because of it, God, who turns good in, bad into good, is able to take all that work and turn it around for his greater glory and for the greatness of the church. 
So as a Catholic, we cannot be pessimistic, nor can we be optimistic. We need to be realistic, and we need to exercise the theological virtues of hope, faith, and charity, particularly in this case, hope, because it is hope that propels us to do great things for the kingdom of God, and to realize that in the realm of politics, and even if the situation looked really gloomy, at the end of the day, God is calling us to exercise this divine power uh, that He that He made that He put our disposal in the church, so that we can bring about His uh, the, the kingdom of God on earth. That is the sacred duty of every Catholic, and we do that through our prayers, our sacrifices, our true participation in the liturgy, and the work in the world that we accomplish patiently gently charitably so that others may come to know and love and serve jesus christ and live for, with him forever and ever in here we i'm saying all of this to really help you understand what this dragon is attempting to do what is he after he's after precisely at the end of the day when you both things down you bring them down the level of every human being you'll understand that this attack is uh, is aimed at you know every Catholic, every man and women to create in them a sense of despair, to prevent hope from propelling them forward and bringing the good news to others. If Catholics understood that nothing can separate us from the love of God, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, then they will be propelled constantly to call upon the Holy Spirit and get the help they need to do what they have to do. That is the key for us. We always have Mass. We always have Mass. And we need to thank God, especially in this country, that we have Mass so readily available for us. And we have to avail ourselves of the liturgy. So, St. Paul in Roman therefore tells us that we must obey, we must pay our taxes, we must be good citizens. That is a given. Because at the end of the day, the political authorities are derived from the, the, the power of God. However, when a political figure sets itself above God or in place of God, then we, of course, cannot obey. We must resist using appropriate means. And our, a good example is, as I said earlier, St. Thomas More. We have to have the, the understanding that if God is unleashing a persecution against His church, it is because He wants to increase the glory of this church, His church, and He also wants to increase the punishment of those who are persecuting His church. So at the end of the day, he's always behind these actions in one way, shape, or form. Let's not, never lose track of this. Let's always have this conversation going with God as we survey the world around us. And we should always ask the Lord, What are you about, Lord? What are you doing here? Why This, is, this political event is taking place, let's say, in the Middle East. What are you about? Why are you doing this? Help me understand what your actions are in this part of the world. What are you trying to bring about? Give me the wisdom to understand what I need to understand so I may live p 
peacefully in the middle of chaos. That is a true Christian calling. The, the, Satan has lost his legal rights to accusation, as we've seen in previous lectures, but he still uh, has authority to empower his evil earthly agents to act, which shows that he's still actively executing his schemes. And that is true throughout history. He will never stop until the very end. Um, as references, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. You can also look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 20 through 26. The first letter to St. Peter, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. The, uh, the, the first letter of St. John, chapter 4, verse 6. Now the wound on the head of the beast reminds us of Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise his head and he shall bruise his heel. So effectively, what we see here is that um, this beast was bruised, but it recovered. In Isaiah 27 verse 1 we read, In that day God will bring the sword the holy sword, and great mighty sword on a dragon, the fleeing serpent on a dragon, the crooked serpent, he will destroy the dragon that is in the sea. The wound, therefore, is inflicted by God, the unnamed agent in Revelation. Verse 3 of chapter 13 would be best rendered as slain. A parody of the lamb who was slain yet, yet stood in chapter 6. So effectively, uh, as I alluded to this earlier, the dragon is creating the parody of God, and so the beast that comes out of the sea looks slain like the lamb who was slain yet lived. But the difference is that in the case of that beast that comes out of the sea, its uh, life is really earthly and short-lived. Now the similarities between the lamb, between between what God is doing, what the dragon continue, the, and the dragon does continue. The lamb received authority from God. We saw that in Revelation chapter five, verse seven through twelve. The beast receives authority from the dragon. The lamb is the ruler over people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That was in chapter five, verse nine. So too the beast rules of, over every tribe and people and tongue and nation in chapter thirteen, verse seven. Those who belong to the Lamb are sealed. Those who belong to the beast are marked. We can see therefore here that when God revealed His church, when God revealed the Ark of the Covenant and threw the dragon down, the dragon immediately began to create a parody of that which was revealed in heaven, a false church, an anti-church, using political and religious powers. And that's going to be ongoing until the very end of the world. In one real sense, what that tells us is that there is no such thing as a secular world. There's no such thing as a non-religious space. Every war that we're dealing with, at the end of the day, is a war of religion. Every battle that is ongoing out there is about what is true and what is false. About that which is good and that which is evil about that which leads us to God, and that which takes us away from God. Um, this is something we, we should never lose track of, because effectively, those who say that uh, we need to take religion outside of the public square, 
are deceiving us. Uh, religion cannot be taken outside of the public square no more than the stones that make the public square can be taken away from the public square without destroying the public square. Religion is that which subtends, which supports the public square, which makes the public square possible. Without religion, you would not have a public square. You'd effectively have a deserted square, a square where people cannot meet and talk. It is religion, true religion, that really leads us to obey and respect the natural law, obey and respect God's wishes for us. And when they say, therefore, we want to take religion out of the public square, what they really mean is take true religion out of the public square and introduce the deception of the devil. And that is the key problem that we're dealing with and a challenge that we are going to be always faced with no matter what. Uh, keep that in mind when you are engaging the public square. The challenge is to really understand the, that what they want to do, even though they may not be uh, clear about it, is uh, they want to be able to create a space where men can talk, and that's wonderful, where men can respect each other, and that's great, where men can be able to debate without killing each other. And we are absolutely all for it. And all that we're saying is that you're not just dealing with men. If you take the crosses out of cities, if you silence the church, what you're doing is opening yourself up to demonic forces that are going to completely overwhelm you. And you will end up either in tyranny or in anarchy. Those are your choices. You pull the church away, you'll end up in tyranny or anarchy and superstition. And we have, therefore, to counteract that sort of language and explain that, no, there is no need to take God out of the public square as long as we understand that we have to obey the natural law. And that's really the crux of the debate. In light of the liturgical reading of the book of Revelation, the logical conclusion we derive from the, cl the clues that were given here is that the devil uses political world power as a means to an end, and that end is the institution of false religion and the establishment of false liturgies and possibly of anti-liturgical activities. That's what he wants at the end of the day. He wants uh, men and women to be engaged in activities that lead them away from mass. All of what he's doing, all of that stuff, allowing the emperors to be worshipped and creating all this false religion has only one purpose. Keep men and women away from mass. Once you understand the strategy behind the battles, once you understand what is going on, what is important, what is not, you can then really begin to fight the good fight. You really know where you want to spend your energies when you shouldn't be spending energies. Catholics would be doing themselves a disservice if all they did was focus on social activities, which are really important, don't get me wrong, and neglect the Mass. It does us no good to do all the social activities you want in the world if when we go to Mass we're not in a state of grace, we are not worshipping in truth and in spirit, we're not really in the presence of God. We will fail. All our activities will not yield fruit or their fruits will be taken by someone else. It will not benefit us. So therefore, it is extremely important for us to understand that and to understand that our goal in life is not to simply be another charitable organization, however worthy the work is. 
Our goal is to understand that we are children of God. We must worship God in spirit and truth. Put our petitions before His throne in heaven every Sunday and let Him show us what must be done and then go about doing it. Then we can be true and effective agents of change in the world that bring about peace and reconciliation among men and nations. That is the game plan for Catholics. And that's why there can be no peace in the world without the Catholic faith. Ever. Peace and truth and freedom. These three, peace, truth and freedom, cannot exist without the Catholic Church. Now most commentators do not point out that the mention of the head that was slain and was healed occurs after the dragon had transferred his power to the beast. That's important because this, was, this is telling us that Satan infuses power into Rome. Just as Satan was personally defeated by Christ on the cross, he will be defeated politically in Rome by the church. So Satan effectively is giving Rome the ability to survive. And, and just as on the cross, Christ, who seemed defeated and crushed and dead, defeated Satan, the church now, who seems to be so small and persecuted and powerless is going to end up defeating Satan in Rome and turning things upside down. Revelation 17, 9-10 speaks of seven hills, which are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has, yet, has not yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, Josephus and Suetonius and other ancient historians list the first seven emperors as follows. Uh, Julius Caesar who reigned from 46 to 44 B.C., Augustus from 24 B.C. to A.D. 14, Tiberius the first from A.D. 14 to 37, Caligula from 37 to 41, Claudius from 41 to 54, Nero from 54 to 68, and Galba from 68 to 69. And Nero was described by Pliny as the destroyer of the human race. Uh, the poison of the world, and the enemy of mankind. According to Apollonius of Tiana, he was commonly called a tyrant. Tacitus relates that he put to death so many innocent men. At the age of twelve, Nero thought the prosecution and ruin of his own brother and aunt. His mother, Agrippina, schemed to advance him into high places of power, and she may have been the one who poisoned the previous emperor, Claudius. When he came to power at the age of seventeen, Nero poisoned his own brother. He had his mother killed and ordered his tutor to commit suicide. He had his first wife exiled and then beheaded. While his second wife was pregnant with his son, he kicked her to death. His uh, perverse sexual appetites are all well documented. In the year 68, a fire broke out in Rome. It was commonly believed that Nero said it. He blamed the Christians at the instigation of Popea, the Jewish harlot, he launched his first persecution against the church, during which St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred. Tacitus, who, had not, who was not a Christian sympathizer, wrote, Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts that were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when day had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in a circus. There arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good that they were being destroyed. He was talking about the Christians. 
Nero eventually committed suicide, lamenting in self-pity when an artist the world is losing. So effectively, this man was a real monster by any standard. And uh, I'm jumping ahead here, but I think it's worth pointing out that when the Greek form of the name Nero Kaiser is transliterated into Hebrew and converted into numerals, it adds up to 666. Hebrew, like uh, Latin, does not have a separate set of symbols for numbers. Uh, every, there are letters that represent numbers, just as, uh, you know, C, X, V, L, I, uh, in, uh, in, um, in the Latin language represents different numerals. So, uh, when, you, when you then write a name in Hebrew, you can look and see what kind of combination you, combination you have, and you can come up with the number 666. Furthermore, some ancient manuscripts of Revelation have a, the variant numeral 616 instead of 666. This number points also to Nero because he, when the Latin form of the name Nero Caesar is transliterated into Hebrew and converted into numerals, it adds up to 616. Now, uh, I would like to hasten and point out that 666 can mean also... Um, um, you know, it can correspond to other names of emperors. Um, uh, Vespasian, for instance, can... Uh, um, not Vespasian. Um, uh, Domitian. Domitian's name can also be seen as 666 in Hebrew. So, the number Nero's name is not the only one that turns to 666. But when we look at the overall um, um, clues that we have, all the uh, pointers from his own personal life from the way he persecuted Christians, the uh, uh, Diocletian, I mean, I said Domitian, I really mean Diocletian. Diocletian's persecution were small compared to that of Nero. Nero's persecution of Christians were the greatest and, uh, and most uh, important ones. And also his own personal life, the way he lived, and what happened right after his death, the chaos in which the empire fell, we have reasonable uh, uh, cause to believe that Saint John is was had Nero in mind when he uh, talked about the number six six six. Particularly when we assume that the Book of Revelation was written before seventy A.D., not after, which is a very tenable uh, position. Now I'll tell you that the majority of uh, uh, exegetes out there still hold to a post ninety. Uh, writings of the book of Revelation, but uh, in truth, if you look at all the arguments they bring forth, none of them is conclusive, and therefore a pre-70 position is, is, uh, is tenable and is supported by the evidence of the text, and it takes into consideration the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, uh, in light of the importance of the covenant and the words of Jesus Christ that we see in the New Testament about the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly in the Gospel of St. Luke. When all of that is put together, we can see why Nero is effectively uh, uh, had the number 666. Now, now, that can apply also to others, no doubt, just because there will be multiple antichrists coming through history. Nero is not the first, I mean, he's not the last, and uh, he is one of many antichrists, those who oppose the reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I am not exclusively saying that this applies only to uh, to Nero, but Nero is certainly a very uh, a prime candidate for that number, representing therefore uh, the extreme uh, terror 
in the uh, in the political power of Rome, which was then raised to the level of um, um, you know a complete blasphemy of God because these emperors required worship from their uh, from those who lived under their reign of terror. Now, uh, the one thing about 666 I want to also point out to you is that it could be intended as a contrast with 888, the numerical value by Gimateria of the name Jesus. And 8, as you know, is the 8th day, whereas 6 is the 6th day. Man was created on the 6th day with the beasts, but he was created for the 7th day. Now, Goliath stood 6 cubits and a span tall and used a spear that weighed 600 shekels. That we find that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4 and 7. The king of Babylon erected a statue that was 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide. We find that in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. In the first book of Kings, chapter 10, verse 14, we read that Solomon amassed 666 talents of gold in taxes. Now, this is the only other place in the Bible where 666 occurs. Solomon was known for his great wisdom. Solomon was the only king priest of Israel and became an antichrist. By way of echo, Solomon would remind the readers of another king, of course, Herod. So, what is going on here, I mean, I jumped ahead, I apologize, but let's cover this business of 666 and go back to the middle of the text. What is going on here with the number 666 is that first it points to a Roman emperor. Nero is, as I said, a very good candidate. It doesn't have to be Nero, uh, but it's a prime candidate. However, in scripture, 666 points also to Solomon. Solomon was asked not to, 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 to obey the three rules of a good king. You will not multiply taxes. You will not multiply chariots. You will not multiply wives. And he went ahead to systematically violate all three of those laws. And when he uh, collected taxes from the people, he collected 666. Um, um, uh, essentially, the, the total number of what he had collected, whether it was bags, I don't remember exactly right now, or, or, or buckets or boxes or whatever, he had 666 of these. That's the first time that this number occurs. And as you recall from the reading of chapter uh, 13 right here, at the end of this chapter, we read that in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. It calls for wisdom. And no one was known for his wisdom as much as Solomon. So, uh, there is, therefore, in that number, not just the Roman emperor, but also the priest-king, Solomon, who turned into an antichrist at the end of his life. And by way of echo, we now look at the current reigning king, which is Herod. I, when we've talked substantially about Herod, when we talked about the dragon. So, w w politically speaking, we have... Uh, we have the Roman em uh, emperor on one hand. We also have the Herodian king on the other, and we also have the 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 uh, uh, 
the figure of the high priest who also at that time was set against Christianity. And all of this combines together into this number 666 to tell us that it is a number of a man. Hence, the, every man, in a sense, that denies Jesus Christ as King and Lord, every man that denies the authority of God and who secretly wants to put himself instead of God, has, bears that number, 666, which is the mark of the beast. All right? So... That is this number that St. John is warning people about. And in our own times, instead of essentially wasting our effort trying to convert names into numbers to see which name will turn into 666, we would be, we would be better off looking at the behavior and conduct of political and religious figures and putting them to the test of the church. Which one opposes the church? Which one supports the church? Which one is pro-life, which one is not? Which one wants to protect the family, which one does not? And these criteria will help us to understand the roles that these men and women in politics and in religion are playing today so that we understand exactly how we must deal with them in the sense that we understand to what extent we have to obey them when they're in power and when we have to resist peacefully according to the means of the church what they're saying so that we can apply the teachings of revelation in the public affairs just as again saint thomas more did now after going back therefore to the to the to our text what is really interesting is that after nero died the line of caesar's ended because nero was the last emperor in the line of julius caesar after his death, the empire was thrown into chaos and into a state of civil war. And then the empire recovered with the rise of Vespasian, the second emperor to persecute Christians. So we see the empire being on the brink of destruction, and then suddenly it rises again. And that explains the beast that was wounded but had recovered uh, That's a really interesting factor because we can look we can look to the way empires and, and, uh, and countries uh, function, how they last and how long they last and what they do. And we sometimes wonder, how can God allow such a country that is opposing the church, persecuting the church, to remain in power or even to prosper? Well, it is because God has long, longer-term plans. It is because He wants His church on earth to bear witness to his love and to bear witness to his glory and we need to realize that most often God's plans God's plan is not linear it isn't oh these people are opposing my church I'm going to remove them right now sometimes they are, he allows them to increase the persecution of the church because he because he has ulterior uh, motives. He has uh, uh, far greater glory that he wants to accomplish for his church that we cannot understand or uh, fathom at the time. But these patterns that we see here help us uh, be wiser about uh, God's plan and not jump to conclusion that God is sort of, uh, you know, sitting on the side passively, letting this whole thing play out, and at the end of the world, he will then go about punishing those who didn't what they're supposed to do. 
God is actively involved right now. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Lord of history. And He is directing history towards its intended end. Let's keep that in mind. Um, now, going back to the text, the exhortation of, of verses 9 and 10 echoes the exhortation in the seven churches and ties the situation of these churches with the rise of the beast. And these verses are a paraphrase of Jeremiah 15.2. Those are for pestilence to pestilence, and those are for the sword to the sword. Those are for famine to famine, and those are for captivity to captivity. All right? And Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel that God has destined them to go into captivity and to suffer from the sword as a penalty for their unbelief and sin. This is not only against sinners, it is against the family as a whole. And that's really important. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12 to 23, we hear, Son of man, when the land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its staff of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So, it isn't just about individuals, it is about entire families. When a, a country is going to face the wrath of God, the wrath of God flows through the families, and those families who have not been righteous will see all their family members hit by that wrath. And God, at the end, will give to each one His due. Those who live through it and suffer and bear witness to Him will be raised in glory, and those who refuse to do that will be condemned to eternal darkness. The emphasis, therefore, is once more on the importance of the liturgy as seen from the conclusion of verse 10. We endure and persevere through the liturgy. Christians should suffer according to the will of God and entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That is from 1 Peter 4.19. Christians are to obey the state because it was ordained by God. We saw that in Romans 13, verse 1 through 7, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But when the state oversteps its bounds and demands worship, they are not to obey, but are to submit to the to the punishments that the state decrees for this non-compliance, as in 1 Peter 2, 18, 20 implies. We always follow the teachings of the church in this regard. Now, a brief word on the beast on the land. It is a religious figure, since it's, it is called later a false prophet, in chapter 16, verse 13, 19, 20, and 20, 10. Obviously, it's a parody of Christ, because it is a lamb that speaks like a dragon, but it's also a parody of the two witnesses and of the two olive trees, because it stands in opposition to all that Christ, the witnesses, and the olive trees mean. Interestingly, the Reformers identified this beast with the Catholic Church. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, this is where we have to be very careful. It's very easy to start, you know, uh, re resorting to slander when we want to... Uh, um, do away with someone who's opposing us, and we Catholics must always, uh, always resist slander in all its forms. This beast deceives those within the covenant community. So the political beast is there for those who are outside of the covenant community. This one is for those who are within within the covenant community. Recall the false teachers in the church 
in, chap in the initial chapters of Revelation, chapter 1 through 3, which are encouraging compromise with the culture's idolatrous institutions associated with the cult of the emperor. The authority of the second beast is confirmed by a parody of the authority of Moses due to the signs. So it, it is able to perform signs just as Moses was able to perform signs. And its purpose yet is to deceive those who are in the covenant community and who are already willing to compromise. They found someone to tell them it's okay to compromise and then just follow. The second beast echoes the words of the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem who incited the people to shout, We have no king but Caesar. In John chapter 19, 15, Understand what that means when they said we have no king but Caesar. They were effectively saying that we are willing to worship Caesar. Because if you say we have no king but Caesar, you're basically saying we are willing to obey what Caesar says and do. And therefore we are willing to give Caesar worship because this is what Caesar is demanding. Now, a quick word about the, bland, the, the, the uh, branding. According to Plutarch and Herodotus, disobedient slaves were tattooed as well as soldiers, and also loyal devotees of gods of various religions. This means that the beast worshippers are his property, and to be unable to buy and sell is a reference to chapter 2, verse 9, 6, 5 through 6, where it is said that economic measures are directed against Christians. In chapter 2, verse 9, Christians are materially poor. A mark was used by, of the emperor's seal on business contracts and the impress of the Romans' rules heads on coins. So now, what does that mean? Does this mean that the, those who are marked or by the beast have a physical mark? No. How do we know that? The seal of the believer is invisible and so is the mark of the unbeliever. There are spiritual states more, than, more so than physical states. What it means, therefore, is that they, the mark represents the consent of those who are willing to serve the beast. It's their interior state of mind that says, I will not serve Christ, I will serve the beast. And when we are living by the word of God, when we are worshipping God in truth, and following the dictates of the church, we are preserved from this deception, and we are preserved for eternal life, and that is what we should strive for, and that is what is the purpose of the book of Revelation, showing us how to to preserve in our faith until the day we meet the Lord face to face. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.